G'day everybody, welcome to the Fight Fit Podcast. We have got uh, Barry Michael on the podcast today, former world champ, and uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on, mate. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Jake. Pleasure to be here, mate. Still pinching myself a little bit after I've watched your documentaries and everything to have the great man himself on the podcast. Thank you, mate. Yeah, that, the documentary for your listeners out there is called A Melbourne Story and it was done by uh, Nick Butler from yeah. Bright Star Media and he did a fa- fabulous job in the awesome. documentary about Lester and I and about the whole scenario sort of thing. Yeah, I absolutely loved it, mate. It was yeah. such a good doco. Um, so what are you up to at the moment, mate? What are you up to these days? Um, we'll just come from the gym with my oldest boy, Zach. We just had a bit of a workout, but um, working in, you know, looking at working in with the, a Chinese group that I do some business with, uh, hopefully to start promoting some fights out of China. Um, looks like the first one could be in Shanghai. The date they've given me is the 16th of October. Um, spoke to Brian Armatruder today and, you know, possibly Zach Dunn could fight the main event over there against the number one Chinese. I can't think of his name. It's probably a little bit unpronounceable. <laughs> but uh, they seem very keen and, you know, uh, Fox Sports Australian main event look fairly keen to get behind it. Oh, but wow. they're, they're telling me they want a five-year contract and four to five fights a year. So if it happens, Jake, I'll be, it'll be great for Australian boxing. Yeah, and how do you see Australian boxing at the moment? How do you see the current climate? I think it's probably in the healthiest it's been for 15 years or maybe more. It's been, it is, I think we've got so many good up-and-comers, and I won't name everyone because I'll miss people, um, but there's a lot of great prospects in Australia at the moment and a lot of good local fights coming up. I mean, we just had had uh, Dwight Ritchie and Tim Zhu, and now we've got yeah, uh, a really, really good quality fight, fight. And quality fight and quality match-up and a quality undercard. And now we've got uh, Jeff Horn and Zarafa, which is another yeah. great um, contest, local fighters. Uh, you know, without bringing, bringing imports in that really aren't up to the task. You know, two world-rated, world-class fighters. Jeff Horn, you know, obviously a legend after <coughs> beating one of the greatest ever in Manny Pacquiao, which when he beat Manny Pacquiao, I told everybody he had the style to beat Pacquiao. And, you know, perfect timing. He manhandled him. He, just, he manhandled him. Yeah. He fought the perfect fight. Well, he Manny's... He, but the commentators he, didn't... Were, were so biased against him, I thought. No, no, I was one of the commentators. We had him actually winning the fight. Yeah. You, since then, every other commentator, it started off with um, Teddy Atlas. Teddy yeah. Atlas said he was blatantly robbed and then Lennox Lewis, that Manny was blatantly robbed. After the fight, Manny was humble, mm. accepted the loss, but within two days, the world, you know, the the fact that an unknown Australian had taken, had beaten the great Manny Pacquiao. And you know what? As Manny Pacquiao tried to enforce the rematch clause that he had, because there was a mandatory rematch clause. He's never wanted the rematch. And I'm not saying Manny wouldn't win in a rematch, because Manny's shown some incredible form since. But at the time, Jeff Horn was on a roll. He was fight fit. He's strong, aggressive. He's got power. And he's unpredictable, and I just knew that he had the right style to upset Manny. In a rematch, could be different, who knows? But Manny's never wanted the rematch. I found it, yeah, I found it strange that there are a lot of people calling out saying that, that Manny was robbed. And, and yeah, yeah, Manny wasn't was robbed. He wasn't robbed at bizarre, all. Bizarre you, know, you know, it went to the, to the WBO. Um, I think they had a dozen judges sit and watch it because there, you know, there was a lot of, um, lot of stuff happened afterwards. And I think 10 out of the 12, I can't remember how many exactly, but it was a large majority of the judges had, had Jeff Horn winning. So, you know, to, to still keep reading about how um, the great Manny Pacquiao was robbed blindly in Australia, it really sort of hurt. 
hurts me and it mm. sickens me a bit that they're, they're still saying that stuff, you know. Jeff Horn won fair and square and one of the greatest victories for any Australian boxer ever. I think it um, goes to show how underrated Jeff Horn is as well oh. a little bit. Well, you know, I tell you, I saw Jeff Horn early doors. I think it was his fourth fight. I, look, I love Samuel Colomban. He probably has heard me talk about this half a dozen times, but I asked Jake Carr, who I was promoting at the time, and Fantastic Zach Dunn, both very good fighters. And Zach Dunn, of course, yeah. Two, two guns, and I asked them both because they both trained with Jeff Horn at the Australian Institute of Sport. I said, how will Sam Colomban go against Jeff Horn or, you know, vice versa? And they both said Jeff Horn knocks Sam Colomban out. And I said, Sam Colomban doesn't get knocked out. And you know what? Since then, he's never been knocked out. He's fought for the Commonwealth title. He's fought 12-rounders. He's fought world-class fighters. He's never been knocked out. One minute into the first round, Jeff Horn hit him with a right hand. Sam was asleep. The fight was he was counted out. The fight was over. Jeff Horn was celebrating, and Sam jumped up. He didn't even know the fight had started. Mm. So it was an incredible clean knockout. And that's ever since then I've I've known that Jeff Horn had was something special okay. to do that to Sam Colomban because as I said, Sam's a one tough cookie and a ripper bloke and and a quality fighter. So, so Jeff Jeff Horn obviously went and fought. Crawford after that, which was just a massive, massive fight, and the next level of sort of calibre of opponent after that. Yeah. How did, how did you see that fight playing out? And well, to plan, you, you know, I went over to Vegas with, with Eddie Maguire and, and Paul Kenton and covered the fight. And to be honest with you, you know, I was aware of a lot of things that Jeff Horn was seriously struggling with the weight. Um, Crawford is one of the greatest talents I've ever seen and the more I hadn't watched that much of him until I got in my room in Vegas and I watched quite a bit of his fights and I thought my god this is going to be a, a very difficult job indeed but to be honest with you you know it's always tough when you're fighting out of town you're in a foreign country you know Crawford was basically in his, in his element and when you walked into the MGM Grand it was Jeff Horn was the champion there was massive sign up Crawford and versus Horn, like you know, as Crawford was the champion, should have been the other way round. Uh, Crawford was given a three-level penthouse with saunas and gym and all that sort of stuff, and Jeff Horn was with his wife and brand new baby in a suite, the same as I had. Um, look, he struggled. He struggled with the weight. The final straw for me was at the weigh-in uh, the day before the fight. Jeff Horn came in. I think I don't know whatever hundreds of grams over, three or 400 grams over, pound or so. And um, three other fighters, Jeff Horn said he weighed on two calibrated sets of scales and was under the weight. Three other fighters that thought they were underweight weighed in over the weight. So what they, what happened there? So that was the, so you, you know. He, it might have been something under Well, I just or? think, I just think he was, he was psychologically half beaten by the time he got in the ring. And then he gets in the ring with a guy that's got incredible speed and power. And look, you know, I'm not saying Jeff could have beaten Crawford. But I'm pretty sure he would have, get, you know, done a done a better job. But again, was making having to go and take off weight before the weigh-in and the psychological side of the the battle is a big part of it. And look, personally, with me, if if I had been looking after Jeff Horns, easy to say that now, but I did say it to other people, I would have moved him up in weight, vacated the title. Um, Bob Arum paid him well, paid him two and a half million US to lose to Crawford to lose his title. But Bob Arum would have probably paid him a minimum 500k to stand aside because he could have matched two of his own fighters, Errol mm. Spence or someone like that, against Crawford. And I don't think Errol Spence wins that fight just yet. 
Well, yeah. we, we, I'm just saying, he, yeah. you know, Jay, he could have matched him against yeah. one of his own other fighters and he would have got a far bigger crowd, far bigger pay-per-view because Jeff's a relative unknown. And and uh, also there was the issue about the horsehair gloves. I mean, I got flown to Sydney to discuss it with Johnny Lewis, myself and and uh, and Jeff and that about and uh, Glenn Rushton about whether they should fight in horsehair gloves. And after the after, and I said, well, you know, after it was all over, I said, well, you know, you're the champion. You tell them what you want to wear. You know, surely you're the champion. You got to decide. I want to wear horsehair gloves. Which I mean, for our listeners out there, the old horsehair gloves used to be able to break away the the knuckle part of it and would separate the horsehair, and you could feel your knuckles through it. But I've, the new horsehair gloves, they've got ridges right the way across them, and they're not as um, they're not as easy to you know play with, basically. But even so, so what's the difference between the new horsehair <laughs> gloves and like a normal uh, glove? Well, the n- normal ones are foam. They're they're a foam, and they're even they're even all over. So the horsehair is going to cut you up. Well, the horsehair is going to definitely cause more cuts, and and you know, almost the old in the old ones, I've got some at home, which basically you could they're like bare, almost bare knuckles, you know. Because you can feel your knuckles through, and once you break the horsehair apart, which used to be an old trick. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. One of the old tricks, you know. So, in terms of you said you mentioned um, Zoo versus Richie, that was a really good quality fight. Quality fight, excellent fight. Do you think fight. that the next step for Tim Zoo would to be to head overseas and get some fights in over there and start to make a name for himself on the world stage? Well, you know, I'd love to see. Uh, See Tim Zoo. I want to speak to um, No Limit Promotions. I've already had a few preliminary talks with Matt Rose. Um, maybe next year we were going to do it this year to get him over in China, get him some exposure, get him some fights overseas. And his father, you know, Kosha's in Russia now. Russia. Why Costa wasn't at the fight? I was a bit surprised. Um, wasn't at the fight. Yeah. To be honest with you, he's got a lot of big things, business, big business things happening in uh, in Russia. In Russia. But I think if you if the fight if we happen to get uh, Timmy Zoo on in China at some stage, I'm pretty sure Kosh would be there. Uh, I'm in contact with him still. Uh, we speak occasionally. Um, as you said, you know, great great fighter, great fighter. And and look, Timmy Zoo, big shoes to fill, but he's doing a remarkable job. He, I actually thought Dwight Ritchie might have been a bit too quick, but uh, you know, unfortunate about Dwight getting the cut eye. But Dwight fought a great fight. And uh, you know, but Timmy Zoo showed me that he can he can step up different gears and he, he can adapt to, to different to styles. The pressure. He seems to be able to rise to the pressure. He doesn't it, seem like he gets carried away with it. He much. he's incredibly calm. I was speaking to his manager Glenn Jennings about this only two days ago, and he takes everything in his stride. And I think he's inherited that from his father. His father was as cool as a cucumber. Um, and as his father said, you know, the difference between the two of them is like Kostya had 275 amateur fights where Tim had maybe 20 or whatever it was. But <coughs> they are cut out of the same cloth and you can see Timmy Zoo maturing every fight. He's doing things that he didn't do a couple of fights ago. He's the real deal. He's the real deal. And, and you know, him and Jeff Horn, like let's say Jeff has a victory over Zarafa and, you know, in, in, within, 12, within 12 months you could possibly see that fight happen. I, I wouldn't, if I was looking after Timmy Zoo, and, and I don't think his management, Glenn Jennings, or, or um, No Limit uh, Promotions would rush into it, but within 12 months I think it's a possibility that you, we could see it. Yeah, They've I both mean, got to keep winning, of course. Yeah. Jeff Horn has got a massive... 
sort of task ahead of him in Zarafa? Oh, Zarafa's a tough fight. You know, there's, I think, and I spoke to Jeff about this too. I've no, I've watched Michael Zarafa since he's been a young lad. I've seen him spar Zach Dunn, and and I've seen him, you know, spar a lot, lot in the gym. I've seen him fight a lot. And look, he's a quality fighter. He's world class. He's um, he's still a young man. He's still improving under Sam LeBruno. I think he's improved more. Um, he's durable. He's very durable. He's got a great boxing IQ. You know, Jeff's unpredictable. It's going to be the first early rounds of this fight are going to tell a story. But um, if 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 Zarafa can work Jeff Horn out and can handle the pressure, because Jeff Horn's had a few bad, really bad cuts, and Zarafa's got fast hands, got a good jab, he could quite easily cause lacerations around Jeff's eyes as the fight progresses. And you know, it, it, it's in a two-horse race against two quality opponents, anything can happen. As you know, we're always one punch from disaster. But I mean, you'd think that Jeff Horn would win the fight, but you know, Zarafa's in with a big chance. It's a great opportunity, a great all-Australian fight. It's a ripper. Last question on Jeff Horn. So he's been <laughs> pretty much the top of world boxing. He's fought Manny Pacquiao and he's fought Terence Crawford. He's now fighting back in Australia. Do you think that there's a chance that he goes back up the rankings and maybe can can get back to the, those big international fights? Oh, I've heard rumours that uh, he gets over this fight, he's going to get a version of one of the middleweight titles, an opportunity. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've heard rumours. Oh, wow. I won't mention who it is or where it is, no but it's, it's, it's about that he'd have a good chance with. Um, <clears throat> it's going to be interesting to see how he goes at middleweight, but he's very, very strong, very so physically strong. you think he's hit his peak and he's going to come back down? Do you think he's going to keep striving forward? Um, it, that's a really tough question. I mean, you, you know, you're always one punch and one fight from disaster. Definitely. Anything can happen in boxing. I'll reserve my judgment until after this fight with Zarafa. You know, if he handles Zarafa easily, which, you know, I don't think is going to happen. I, I've told Jeff I think it's a tough fight for him because, as I said, Zarafa's a quality world-class fighter. But the fight will tell a story, you know, depending on how he comes out of it, whether he's cut up badly. Look, say, for instance, Jeff received another couple of really bad cuts in this fight and wins on points. He might even think to himself, you know, I've made a few million bucks. I've got two kids now. You know, he's talked. He doesn't want to be fighting too long. Unless, unless you know, things go well for him, you never know. He might step out of the sport. And he said there's only a, he's only going to fight until he's, I think he's, did he say 35 or 34? Anyway, he said he's not going to fight too much longer because, um, well, you know, he's achieved a, a great deal already and, you know, I mean, I'd be good to, it would be good to see him get a shot at another world mm. title. It would be great, especially at a higher weight. I would have thought personally they would have gone from welterweight to light middleweight, but they, they've gone straight to middleweight, yeah. which is a p- pretty fair step. Yeah. And um, if you had to put the spotlight on one or two young Australian boxers, whether it be guys who are amateurs going to the, trying to get to the Olympics or young pros that you think can really fly the flag for Australia, who would you, who would you put the spotlight on? Oh, look, that Caesar uh, Matteo Tapia who fought on the undercard last yep. week, <coughs> he's one of the standouts for me. Uh, he really is something else. I mean, look, you know, I've been involved with Zach Dunn for a long time. You know, Zach Dunn's lost one fight out of 30 professional fights with 24 knockouts. He deserves an opportunity too. Um, I'd love to get him on this podcast. Y- yeah, well, we, right. could, we could get him I'll get him for sure for you. But look, you know, Tim Zhu's on his way up. There's, look, there's dozens of other names I, I really don't want to go into, but there's so yeah, many great fun. prospects, great prospects, Australian prospects out there at the moment. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for covering that part of things. Now, I'd love to know how you got involved involved in boxing. How old were you? What gym were you at? Who was training you? 
I was probably 13 living in the commission flats in Williamtown. My parents migrated from the United Kingdom when I was two. I lived in Hamilton uh, in the Western District for a couple of years where my dad was um, caretaker for a girls' college. And then we moved to Glen Burvey, which is next to Essendon, where I became a bomber supporter only for a couple of years. We, Yeah, sort of, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> the drug saga sort of didn't, yeah. didn't, didn't leave me, leave a good taste in my mouth. Yeah, I wasn't very, very happy with that but you know they're going pretty well they're still hanging in there this year but um moved from Glen Burvey to Williamstown when I was about eight uh in the commission flats and we were you know commission flat family migrants with them my dad dad was relatively uneducated he was a um Lancaster bomber a fighter pod dad's still with us at nearly 90 96 he's 96 October 14th I'm with him every second day and uh, he did 29 trips over Germany dropping bombs in the Lancaster bombers, you know. So he's had an amazing life. He's been the rock, my rock of Gibraltar in the corner for nearly all my fights, maybe a few overseas. He wasn't there. Most of me, he was. But uh, we lived in the commission flats in Williamstown. And when I was about 13, um, Lionel Rose won the world title um, in Japan against Fighting Harada. And I just, the whole story of Lionel Rose, where he came from out of a humpy, basically, you know, Jackson's track, and to achieve what he did on the world stage, Lionel became my idol. By the time I was, well, when I was when I was 15, and by then we used to, in the commission flats, and it was tough, you know, like I was in a lot of fights. I'm, I'm small, I'm small in stature, always been pretty cheeky. Dad taught me how to hold my hands up and punch straight, so gotten a fair few scraps. Uh, don't really recall losing any, to be honest. I had a few, like, give up on me because I wouldn't give in. But at school, the same thing happened. Got in a fair few scraps at school. And when I was 15, my older brother came home, and we had boxing gloves at home, and dad, my dad, who had about 20 amateur fights, has sort of shown us how to punch straight, keep our head down and stuff like that, just basic stuff. When um, my brother, I was about 15, my older brother came home and said he's, he was 17, said he'd been to a local gym and he could fight my brother. But he never did, but he could have. Um, and I went the next night and trained and sparred one of their guys and the trainer there said, um, David something or other, his name was David, can't even think of it now, it's that long ago. He said, uh, yeah, you can fight. So I trained for three weeks, twice a week for three weeks and I had my first amateur fight against a guy that had ten, nine or ten fights and I won. <laughs> I won. I won on points. What were your uh, tactics, if any? <laughs> I just, 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 you know, barreled in there and threw straight punches and, 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 you know, won the fight. It was a split decision. My girlfriend was there at ringside and I thought, this is me because I, w- I was right-handed and left-footed and I wasn't much of a footballer. My brother was a very good footballer, played for Willie for seconds and I think he might have played for the first as well. Uh, soccer would have been my sport, but back in those days, everyone used to bag you and call it wog ball, and you'd end up punching on with they someone that's good. Do that. Well, soccer's a great sport, and yeah. I would have been good at that. But boxing, it just was became was natural for me. So I won. I won five straight as an amateur, and then I lost five straight. And they they basically started throwing me in with guys that had 50, 60, 70, 80 fights, and I'd had you know six fights, five or six fights. So I won five and I lost five, but I reckon four were bad decisions. I still reckon only a guy called Trevor Arnott from Geelong, and I have someone down there I haven't contacted or heard from Trevor for 30 odd, 40 years. But a guy called Trevor Arnott beat me. It was close. And his trainer, Bobby Murdoch, said to me, and I was about 17 then, he said to me, 
listen, you're not an amateur. He said, don't muck around with the amateurs, turn professional, because I'm short in stature. And the amateurs like long, tall, rangy fighters, you know, defence, like it's a bit more like Lots fencing. Volume, yeah. yeah. Um, he said, but turn professional. So I end up going on Alan Meeker. I moved to a trainer called Alan Meeker in um, Oak Park. I had seven fights with Alan Meeker, won six of them and then turned professional when I was 18. He made me wait for six months. I wanted to turn professional before then, but I turned professional when I was 18. On TV ringside, I won my first seven fights, won best first year boxer on ringside and never looked back. And, you know, by then I'd I'd had this dream and goal. One stage, I was going to go as far as I could. Boxing was my career and I was going to fight for a world title. Didn't see beyond it, but I wanted to hear the man saying 15 three-minute rounds for the championship of the world, and that was that was my goal and dream. But then we had, on ringside, we had a couple of deaths, it was a couple of serious injuries, and Courage Brewery pulled out sponsorship, and basically boxing died. And so I went from fighting six-rounders, ready to go into main events on TV ringside for pretty good money back in those days to fighting in halls like the Marconi Ballroom and Emerald Hall and all these different places, 10-rounders. My first 10-rounder, I think my first three 10-rounders, I got $250. And, you know, Ford God... So this like, was the state of Australian boxing in the seven, late 70s? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, 70 or 78. I won the, finally won the Australian title in 1978 in Coona Barabran. Um, you had to go and start... Seeking fights abroad and yeah, and, well, know, I couldn't get fights here. I couldn't get fights here, so I, I fought in the Philip. I fought in the Philippines once. I lost a points decision there to Nene John, Nene John in Cebu City in 1976, and then I came home, and that was at uh, just over featherweight, and I struggled to make the weight, and then I moved up quite a bit in weight, and I went to Indonesia and I fought the OPBF champion. OPBF champion and WBC number seven light welterweight in the world, Wong So Sassino, and beat him on points. So, you know, won that and and then then had they kept me there and I had three more fights. So I ended up having five fights in Indonesia, uh, one in the Philippines. And basically from then on, as Australian champion, I'd defend the Australian title once or twice a year. I defended it, I think, nine or ten times over a decade. I never lost it. Um, and you know, but I just didn't have the fights in Australia that I could have. I basically had fought everyone. I fought Blakeney Matthews, fought Jagu Belisco. You know, lost one here and there. Lost to Jeff Malcolm in 1977, but there was a reason for that. That's because I decided to retire before. But take nothing from Jeff Malcolm. He was a great fighter, great champion. Um, but yeah, so eventually, <clears throat> 1981 was when I to the stage where I'd knocked Jimmy Brown out in the 15th round. It was my fourth fight with Jimmy Brown, the first time I actually beat him um, when I stopped him in the 15th round. At the end of the 14th round, my dad said to me, son, you've won this fight. I can't take this one off you, but for God's sake, go out and stop him in the last round because I'd fought him in the amateurs. My first loss was for the state bantamweight title. Thought I won it. Then I fought him a six-rounder in the professionals, thought I won it and lost the decision, but they're close fights, and Jimmy Brown was a quality fighter, quality bloke as well. And then the third fight was another fight I promoted at Williamstown Town Hall at the end of round one, hit me right on the corner of my eye with the elbow, two minutes and 58 seconds in a round one, split it from one to the other, 24-stitch cut, 
technical draw. So then the fourth fight was the 15-rounder. So I beat okay. him and the promoter, John Brown. He was a tennis promoter. Then he bought out Langton Tanago from Zimbabwe uh, for me to fight for the Commonwealth lightweight title, which um, I was a big underdog. He'd just beaten Cam Buchanan, and I won that won that clearly over 15 rounds. I'd, I'd lost a 15-rounder previously to... Um, Billy Moella for the super featherweight title. That was in orange and it was another fight that was felt could have gone either way. Yeah. So, you know, basically I was learning on the road and f- taking fights against whoever I could. Were you, were you going out to Indonesia and the Philippines, was that to get recognition and to put your face on bouts and get some recognition <coughs> in different countries or was that because was the it, paydays were bigger? No, nah, the paydays. I mean, I was fighting in Indonesia for a thousand bucks. I, I mean, imagine when, it when I went to uh, Kuna Barabran to win the Australian title, 15 three-minute rounds, I got 750 and had to charter a single-engine Cessna up there, which Glenn Walsh, my sparring partner's brother, flew up. Lenny Walsh, if you're out there, Lenny. I know he's been crook for a long, long time, but a great bloke. Um... Yeah, so it was just tough. Boxing was pretty well dead, and I was—I knew I—I I knew I was world class, and I knew I could one day fight for a world title, and that was the dream and the goal. And so I'd go wherever I was offered a fight. Money was a secondary thing, you know. I was working jobs here and there, <laughs> but after I won the Commonwealth title the first time, uh, and I wanted to end up losing it and winning it back again. But after I won it the first time, I thought, um, oh, you know, look, I had a great job with the Department of um, Aviation. I was working at Essendon Airport and Tullamarine Airport as an air safety officer. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to make that much money now. I won the Commonwealth title. I can give work away. But mm. that was the bit worst blue I ever made, you know. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, because, you know, just <laughs> you run out of money and you're fighting every – I'd average four fights a year. You know, fights would fall over or you'd get a cut eye. And, yeah, so it was a tough – it was a real, real tough, hard road. And Lester Ellis, I started sparring Lester Ellis when he was 12. I was 22. I picked him as a future world champion when he so was when, 12. when he first – do you remember that – session vividly sort of when you were in the gym and when he came in as as a little kid and then how that sort of transpired yeah because i used to go around the gyms and spar you know whoever they put in front of me and i'd spar you know six eight you know young blokes one after another just to give them and i wouldn't hurt them i'd just move around with them and show things to them and and this young kid lester lester ellis jumped in the ring with me and attacked me with sort of fearless abandon at 12 you know i was 22 and he was he was fast and he moved well and you know was very basic. But I got out the ring and I said, "What's this kid's name?" They said Lester Ellis. I said, "This kid's going to be a world champion." So then I trained at that gym a lot and and Lester and Graham Brooks, the two two of my later opponents, became great mates and sparring partners. And Graham was a couple of years older than Lester, but another great champion. And so I used to spar them. They used to come to my place. We used to run together. I used to take them through punches. And with Lester in particular not so much with Graham, but with Lester in particular, Lester's father um, always led me to believe that I was going to take over his career when I retired because they figured that would happen. And it's, you know, it's now sort of and history that... The, the, the career was, was what? Well, when, you know, when my career... Because, I mean, I was... Uh, like, by the time Lester turned professional, I was 28. Yeah. You know, fought Frank Rappers Ash Wednesday, okay. went and got involved in a restaurant was still hoping as high as number two in the world in the lightweight division, you know, fought as high as 63 and a half, still hoping I'm going to get a shot at a world title, but it didn't look like it was going to happen. And then all of a sudden Lester Ellis comes on the scene and in, you know, 17 or 18 fights, wins the world title. And there I am at, you know, like 
30 years of age and haven't had a shot, been so close, signed contracts with Bob Arum overseas. There's a million stories I could tell you, but things that fell over and promised to me and opportunities that fell over and then Leicester wins the world title, which I was absolutely wrapped for him, but I'm in the gym one day with my dad and I said, Dad, I'm going to challenge Lester Ellis. And he said, what do you What do you mean, a catch weight? And I said, no, it's a super featherweight or junior lightweight. He goes, son, you know you can't make that weight. I said, well, yeah, I think I can, but I hadn't fought at it since 1976 when I lost a 15-round decision to Billy Moella in Orange, which I really did struggle to make the weight, but I didn't know about nutrition then. So I said, Dad, I've never done it right. And I'll be honest with our listeners, I've always loved the drink wine mainly not a big beer drinker i've always loved my wine i've always loved my food so i always struggled with weight it was always the worst part about boxing and i think most boxers will agree with that when you have to make weight you have to be really strict but i I basically uh my trainer race style didn't think i could do it my dad didn't think i could do it but i just said look i'm i've got to do this try and do this right so i went to a dietitian um, I went to a doctor and they had my fat content weight underwater at the Footscray RMIT and worked out that at around about a body fat content of I think it was 6 or 7%, a bit like a marathon runner. I could make the weight relatively comfortably. Might have been a bit higher than that, uh, Jake, I'm not sure, but I can't remember exactly now. But I went to Karen Inge, who's on radio still, and Karen Inge put me on a diet of 1,000 calories a day, which is was nothing, basically next to next to nothing. It was uh, everything steamed, grilled, no oil, no salt, no sugar, no butter, um, no no um, gravy, and you know, like I used to weigh and calorie count every single thing I put in my mouth. Once a week, I'd eat, have a good feed. Well, anyway, as it turned out, one month before the fight, I'm down to the weight. Sparred 15 three-minute rounds with Glenn Walsh, Graham Brooks. Darcy Ritchie and oh, another young fellow, I can't remember his name, but four of them, 15 rounds, and, and actually been, made the you weight. Must, you must have, when you're sparring those rounds after that, after depriving yourself of, of calories for so long and losing so much weight, you must have been spent. No, no. Once, once I got down to the weight, I, I did a trial weigh-in, you know, like I would do day before the fight, carbohydrate loaded, and then sparred 15 rounds. And did it comfortably, felt strong as a bull. I was still as strong as I was at light world weight. And that was the thing, and I, you know, a month before the fight, the notorious Alphonse Gangitano, who was involved in the promotion, rang me up and said, do you need more tickets? And I said, yeah, I do. I said, but stop back in Leicester. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I know you're back in Leicester. Uh, you can't beat me. And I said, I've sparred 15 rounds today. I made the weight and he cannot beat me. And uh, he said, oh, I know, I love you both like brothers or something similar to that. I'm not betting on this fight, but they lost a lot of money and that's mm. they were filthy on me for it too. <laughs> and people said there was all these rumours about I was supposed to take a dive, but no one ever offered me to take a dive and I never would have anyway. I was offered a lot of money to take dives three times and the biggest one was was overseas for about 300,000 US in 1985. Are you able to divulge what, what happened there? Uh, <clears throat> all I can say it was in Denmark. Um, and I, I could name the guy and everything, but I, I won't do that. Yep, I, I might, at some stage, it might come out. Could could I don't, actually don't even know whether he's still alive, but I think he is. But he actually came out. He saw me knock Mark Fernandez out in my second world title defence in four rounds. A guy that had, he was number four in the world. He just beaten Rod Sequin in Hawaii, and I knocked him out in four rounds. And he, we went out for lunch, and he said to me, "My boy can't beat you." We won a world title, um, and he made me that offer. Made me an incredible offer, and uh, she said, "Look, I'm not interested." You know. Yeah, I can imagine 
with especially with the Leicester Alice fight, like that had been your holy grail. Yes, getting that yeah. world title. So no, no sort of offer to take a dive would ever have even. No, there was a couple of – there was two fights before that, two different fights I was offered to take dives, and one of them, which was made pretty well public, it actually hit the papers, was Lucky Gattelari. Um, Rocky, Rocky Gattelari made a comeback, and so did Lucky Gattelari, and Paul Ferrari fought uh, Rocky Gattelari. I fought Lucky Gattelari at the Horton Pavilion, and uh, I, was, I got $1,500 for the fight, and I was offered 15000 to throw it back then, which is a, you know, probably a pretty good deposit on a house back then. Um, but I, you know, wouldn't even consider it. Never just, would consider it. No, nah, yeah. never, never interested. You know, um, though even the last one, and you know, I thought, oh, you know, I mean, three hundred grand in in nine eighty five was a lot of money, and still is. St- still is a <laughs> lot of money. Yeah, yeah. still yeah. is a lot of money. But um, I mean, you know, you look at the money some of Australia's fighters have made since. You know, Kostya. The great, you know, Anthony Mundine, Danny Green, they've made, you know, made some serious money and good luck to them. Jeff Fennick, of course, Jeff Jeff did exceptionally well, you know, always been a great money earner and uh, had some big fights overseas and undoubtedly one of our greatest. Um, but, yeah, I, I think you, you're going to see Australia per capita, we're, as far as producing world champions, we... We're one of the strongest boxing nations in the world professionally, not as amateur. We've never had a gold medalist in the amateurs, which I'd love to see. Do you think it's possible in Tokyo? Oh, I could be critical. I could be, and I probably yeah, I will be critical. I, I think that the amateur, the amateur hierarchy in Australia have always tended to push away the professionals, you know, like even myself and other people, whereas that's, that's, they're the people that have reached the upper echelons in boxing, whether it be amateur or professional. Someone like, um, someone like Brian Tink, who had 470 amateur fights, one of Australia's greats, maybe would have been a great amateur coach, or definitely someone like Kostya Zhu, who won the world amateur gold medal. You, you need a man that's been a top, in my, in my way of thinking, you need someone that's reached reached the top level. And look, they've made lots of mistakes. We've, you know, we haven't been successful. I don't think we've had anyone pass the second round in the Olympics for decades. You know, for as long as I can remember, we won two silvers. We've never won a gold. Um, I'd love to see it because the first Australian that does win a gold medal at the Olympics is going to be a superstar overnight. And I hope it happens. But I just think they possibly. I've got a good friend of mine, Jason Melia, going. To- Hopefully, fingers crossed, he goes know to the Russia name, yeah. to uh, the world champs in a well, few Well, good weeks. luck to him. And you know. he hopefully qualifies for the Tokyo, but he's, he's got the Australian titles and everything. Good. So Look, I'd love to see it. But, you know, like, I'm, what's his name now? I met, I met a former professional world champion from the United Kingdom. I can't think of his name just offhand, but professional world super middleweight champion who I commentated with out here, and he was telling me as an amateur... Um, like you know, you got the Australian Institute of Sport. They were they were paid a wage. They were given accommodation wherever they go. They get flown everywhere. It's totally different in Australia. The, our guys struggle. The funding's not there. You know, and if you want people to win Olympic gold medals, you need to tip some serious funding in. They have tipped funding in and bought in, and I'm not going to mention names here either, but they bought in coaches from overseas and they haven't appeared to be very successful, to be honest, you know. Mm. And, I mean, I think it's a terribly sad thing that you'd, you would have at least maybe tried to grab someone like the great Kostya Zoo, who's been a great amateur as well. And, you know, I think you need... 
don't necessarily need guys that have been great fighters to make great fighters, but you need guys with great experience in amateur and professional, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, they obviously think differently to what I do. And also you need better funding so that our amateur boxers don't have to worry about <clears throat> their accommodation. You know, they just train full-time, they're full-time. Like the, so many of the amateurs around the world, they're, they're almost they're semi-professional because they're paid a wage, they're housed, they're looked after. Yeah, that would be cool to see us. That's what we need. We need that for sure. It's such a good platform for people to eventually get into the pros. Undoubtedly, Jake, you know, for sure, for sure. But they've got – amateurs in Australia, the way I've always seen it, there's there's too many warring bodies. I've seen seen a lot lot of bad decisions and it's soul-destroying for some lads. You've undoubtedly seen it too. You think, how could they give that decision that way? Um, you know, in a professional fight because it's longer rounds. And it does happen in the professionals. We've all seen it. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it, I'd love to see a, an amateur, Australian amateur boxer win a gold medal, but I think going to be a while. Yeah. yeah okay. And so just getting back to the uh, to your fights now, before Lester Ellis, what would you say was your hardest, toughest fight? Oh, Probably the hardest night ever in my life was Frank Brabus on Ash Wednesday. I, I was actually just you speaking know. to one of our trainers downstairs and he said, make sure you ask him about the Frank Yeah, fight, well, so. you know, Frank was the worldweight champion of Australia. I was the lightweight champion and we fought at a catchweight of 63 and a half. And it was, you know, it just so happened that it was Ash Wednesday. It was like 47 degrees or 46 degrees or whatever in Melbourne and 55 degrees under the lights and... Um, and you know Frank it hadn't been Frank hadn't rumble in the jungle type oh for sure Frank Robus hadn't been beaten in seven or eight years he'd just beaten it just stopped Hector Hector, the great Hector Thompson he'd just beaten baby Cassius you know he was on fire and uh, it was we'd sparred in the gym maybe half a dozen times or more and I knew it was going to be a war I knew how physically strong he was and relentless he was but you know I was just a bit slicker and smarter and I figured that I'd might wear him out late in the fight, which is sort of what happened, but, oh, God, it was hell and back. That was probably the physically toughest fight of my life, and Frank and I are great mates today, and he's just a champion bloke and a champion fighter. Um, but probably my greatest victory ever was against Al Earthquake Carter, mm. and uh, when, I fought, when I fought Carter, he had 23 KOs in 24 fights. He won his last 19 by knockout within four rounds, and you don't were, worry. You were a massive underdog for that Massive well. underdog. Yeah. No one ever hit me as hard. Round eight's the closest. I had 60 professional fights this in my career. touching everyone that he was coming up against. Oh, he was well. stiff and knocking everyone out. Well, they, they tell me, I don't know if it's 100% correct, but they tell me he beat Hearn and prior in the amateurs as an amateur. And I was told, this is true, Jake, um, just before I lost the world title in 987 to Rocky Lockridge in the United Kingdom, I had to go to Atlanta, uh, Norfolk, Virginia. I had to go to the IBF convention to uh, get up and represent myself. And I was told by David Wolfe, who was the manager of Boom Boom Mancini, that I was on the short list of contenders to fight Boom Boom for the world lightweight title because they were him and Al Carter were both from Alliance, Ohio. And he said, Barry, we didn't fancy Ray with Carter. He said, when you beat him, he said, we weren't going to fight you and neither was anyone else. So that was, that was, that set me back. That was 1982. That set me back years, that victory over Carter. Um, yeah. Oh, look, I did sign a world title fight contract with uh, Bob Arum. It got, uh, when I signed up with um, 
Leo Berry, Leo McDonald, Jeff Patterson and Spider Holman, the Waterfront Gang, my my team, when I signed up with them, mm. the next thing I know I'm on a plane first class to New York City, met Bob Arum in his office. Um, he said to me, if you can fight as good as you can talk, you're going to make a lot of money, which is a good laugh. And I caught up with Bob last year in, uh, in a couple of times. And he's amazing at 87. His memory is incredible. Anyway, he, I signed a contract with him to fight Juan Arroyo in Miami. This is about 83, I think it would have been. Um, uh, went home, then went back with Dana Goodson, who later trained Lester Ellis. He was my trainer. I'd bought him from Hawaii, which mm. he jumped ship after what happened in Hawaii. My dad, myself, and uh, my first wife, Sandy, we all went to Miami to finish finalised training for the Juan Arroyo fight at the in the Fontainebleau Hilton live American television 25,000 US for me and when I won a minimum 55,000 to fight Harry Arroyo who was no relation to Juan Arroyo who I fought well, I didn't fight him there because my last sparring session in the famous Fifth Street gym, I say to people, that's where Muhammad Ali trained, Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, Barry Michael, we all trained there. It's <laughs> 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 uh, incredible gym and I saw some amazing stories in that, some things happened in that gym. Duran was training there with us at Did that you stage. Did you meet any of those guys? Yeah, I met most of them. Yeah, Duran, Duran was training with me. They actually thought I was a spy. Oh, really? Yeah, they thought I was a spy. It's uh, a lot of me, a lot of stories like that. I've, I've met um, met Tommy Hearns. I've met uh, Marvin Hagler. I've never, I never met Mike Tyson. I've never met Ali. I've met Lennox Lewis. I've met Riddick Bowe, Vander Holyfield quite wow. a few times. Met, wow. met my Gennady Golovkin. He's a wonderful bloke. But anyway, cut a long story short, um, my last sparring session to fight Juan Arroyo, National American Television, I'd had this nagging heel injury, which was plantar fasciitis. I'd had three quarters zone shots within six weeks. My last sparring session against a Canadian called Mario Cusson. I stepped forward on the ball on my foot and it just went <laughs> and ripped the band of tissue completely off my heel, collapsed came home and the physio said they'd never seen a complete plantar fascia tear without an operation but the cortisone had weakened the tissue so it was anyway it was it put me out of action for months but five months later we bought one away out of melbourne and i stopped him and i think it was seven rounds um he lost i think two out of about 22 at that stage but i cut him up pretty badly and stopped him but it meant nothing in Australia, you know. Like if it had been in America on American television, I would have still got the shot. But uh, Bob Arum never forgot. I couldn't believe it when I saw him in before Pacquiao fought uh, Jeff Horn. I went up and shook hands and I said, do you remember? He said, Barry, how are you? I said, good, Bob. I said, do you remember? He said, of course, Juan Arroyo. I went, wow, you know, mm. incredible memory at 87, you know. Yeah. Well, how did that fight go down? So you just you stopped him in the seventh round? I stopped round. him in the seventh, it yeah. It was a tough fight, yeah. He was a quality opponent. We still were in contact. We speak quite a bit on uh, Facebook and mm. that, you know. He's, Seems like you're juggling a lot of contacts. A lot of people Yeah, well, it's good, you know. I mean, I've caught up with, I mean, Graham Brooks and I are great mates. Lester and I are great mates now. Mm. Um, you know, the people you fight, I mean, you know, you, you've got some, you've got to bond with them forever, you're, basically. You leave a piece of, you take a piece of each other in a way. You in a way you do, yeah. Like it's true, you Jake. Shared, you you know. shared the ring together. Yeah, well, Fr Frank and I was Frank and I had a pretty uh, what's the word hostile relationship for mm. quite a while after I beat him because you know it sort of stalled his career and he was pretty dirty on me for a while. But we're great mates now, and he's he's a wonderful bloke. When you're in say 45 degree, just as one example of when you've had to really have trying conditions, 
what gets you through those sorts of fights? Like, how, how, how do you dig deep and find a way to just sort of mentally persevere? That's a, that's a good question, to be honest. Um, I, I think... I think it's either just something you've got or you haven't got. I think interesting you say that though, because you, you mentioned at the at the start of the podcast that you got in a lot of fights as a kid and you can't remember losing one even though you were small in stature. Yeah, I wouldn't give up. That, do you think that it is just something that you've had in your in your mind? Well, or my dad always taught me basically don't give up. You know, never give up what your dreams and goals are. And uh, look, there was a couple of fights I had at school and Russell Yardley's one of them. We, we didn't speak for probably 40 years, but Russell's the director of a company now and I've well, been, direct, been director of a few few companies as well. And we caught up, but he punched the soul case out of me, but he surrendered. <laughs> so I technically won the fight. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it's like the Homer Simpson fight. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> the Simpsons. <laughs> he just gets beaten up until they can't punch anymore and then he just knocks them out. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. I had a couple couple of fights like that, but Russell Yardley could fight. He was very cocky as well, and and uh, and you know they were always bigger than generally bigger than me and longer arms. And it, uh, yeah, I got a lot of scraps at school. And yeah, so I can't really one on one. I can't recall losing one. You know, mm. is there something that when you when you when you've had your pro fights down the line, some of your <coughs> bigger fights, is there something that you can channel? that really gives you that sort of extra strength or or is that something that you just sort of have that never say die that attitude I think it's that I think it's that never say die attitude that you know my dad instilled to me as a young lad and you know once once I started to progress in boxing and you know had other trainers speak to me and started to realize more and more what I could do and you know it's frustrating when I see guys that have got ability and and don't don't basically grab it you know I've seen it a million times in boxing um, and look as I said I always loved a, a party and loved the drink of that but when a, when a fight was lined up I'd train hard I'd live properly and you know you've, you, you've got to respect this sport because it's a dangerous sport it's for sure hmm. I think that it's so interesting when you see the different perspectives on how different people go about achieving greatness um, if you look at someone like we'll, we'll use Lester Allison as an example his mum left him as a when he was a little kid and he had that sort of anger towards he the world. He did, yeah, he did. And he channeled that in that way. Yeah, that's a, a good point, like, actually. Like Andy Ruiz, who's just beaten Anthony Joshua, and he came from a really poor upbringing um, where he had to suffer a lot. And yep. after the fight, he said oh, to, to his mum, you know, we don't have to suffer anymore. Yep. And it's so interesting to see how different people go great. about it. Well, great to see. And, I mean, that's probably why... You know, I mean, I come from a, not a privileged background. As I said, my dad did a remarkable job because he was a he was a started as a postman when we moved to Williamstown. You know, peddling around, putting letters in, and then he he went to university and night school and got a university degree, and you know, end up with three hundred people under him before he retired. Um, yeah, so you know, Dad's been a great mentor and a great example for me of never say die attitude. And my dad, like me, I'm very, very physically strong for my size, and that was one of my biggest assets always. And my dad's the same; he's incredibly strong. And to see what he went through in the war as well, you know, um, I think I certainly inherited it from him. Mm. You know, 
my durability and, and toughness and that. I mean, mum was a wonderful... My mum hasn't been with us for a long time. She passed away from, from uh, breast cancer, but she was a wonderful woman. But I think my toughness and durability comes from my father's side. And I've, look, I've got Irish-English blood. My grandmother was fully Irish, so mm. a bit of a mixture. You, you think know. that that's where you got your uh, sort of smart-ass... <laughs> Uh, thing from from the Irish from side the could Irish. be could possibly be. I'm not really really <laughs> sure to be honest. I just yeah. find it so find it so funny when I when, when people talk to each other in the ring um, and the things that they say because when you're in the heat of the battle right at, at that moment it's quite hard unless it, unless it's something that comes naturally to you it's hard to be able to talk to someone and to, to be able to be witty and you, yeah well that was something you, you did quite quite well, well round three with Leicester when. Um, let you know, Gus Mercurio step between us and warn me for punching low and then said box on and for a split second I sort of was thinking about what he'd said to me and Lester went on with it and Lester picked me up with an uppercut and smashed me with a right hand and I was in Disneyland it was one of the biggest shots I ever took and he, he knew I was badly hurt and he bombarded me and I tried to grab him and he pushed me off. Three times he bombarded me. Finally, I got him and I said to him in his ear, I got him pulled in close and I said, if that's the best you can do, you want to forget it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he said to me afterwards, he said, uh, I was the only bloke he, he fought that could talk and fight for 15 rounds. That's the thing. That's what I find yeah. so fascinating is that and he, he talk and fight. So he, he said if he, we fought again, he'd wear earplugs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I talked to a lot of my opponents so I talked to we, Frank and I had a few words, or you know, Frank was just basically wanting to kill me. Do you remember what you said to, to him? Frank, I just was, would hit him with some good clean body shots, and I'd go, "That hurt you, didn't it, Frank? You know, you're going to be able to take them all night." He just go, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he was relentless. He was just relentless and so strong. You know, I'd 14. He hit me. We'd sparred in the gym years before, and he hit me with a an uppercut and put the buckle of my head guard through my, under my chin. I think I had six or seven stitches without the head guard on the night of the fight. He hit me with the uppercut and it fought out a 14 stitch cut there, and my teeth came right through here and they sort of rolled so over 14, there. 14 the under the chin. Just, for who were just listening, so under the chin, you had a 14, 14 stitch, stitch cut, cut under the chin and about five or six in the mouth where my teeth had, my gum had folded over my teeth, and wow. my teeth, teeth had come right through. And, you know, my left eye was cut as well. I actually looked a bit of a mess after the fight. Um, I can imagine. <laughs> I remember I met Bob Hawke uh, the next day or the day after for the Royal Children's Hospital Bob Telethon, Hawk, I think. Man. The great man, Bob Hawke, and he, he watched the fight and he congratulated me. Was he sculling a few beers or no? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'd, I'd had a, quite a few beers after the Frank Ravers fight because I went straight to North Melbourne Social Club and rehydrated after the stinking heat. And you know, and you, might have met, you might have been a bit thirsty. I was thirsty. And I anyway, met Bob Hawke and my head had blown up overnight you know two days later you always look a lot worse and I'd blown up big time and he congratulated me he said what a great fight it was because it was televised and he, as he walked away I heard him say my god Barry Michael won the fight imagine what Frank Robers looked like <laughs> so I was, I was pretty I was a bit of a mess yeah uh, I imagine and then with the uh, Lester Ellis fight I remember him saying that if he had have fought that same fight but it were somebody else who he didn't have as much respect for and who didn't get in his head like that that he reckons he would have won the fight yeah I think he's probably changed his tune on that to be honest Lester 
going back about three or four years, and Les is really going well now. He hasn't had a drink for years. That's a fantastic decision. But he said to me, because he did have some issues, he said to me a couple of years ago when we were having a beer, he goes, Baz, the next time I, we do a, a talk, I'm going to tell the truth. And I said, what do you mean? Because for years I lived under this shadow that I wouldn't give him a rematch, which wasn't true. I was always willing to have the rematch. It was talked about. It would, um, fight. it would have been a massive fight, massive payday. Lester, Lester basically has said on radio, uh, and he said it in public, that he never wanted a rematch. I always had his number, and he never could have beaten me. And, you know, it took him 30-odd years, but that's that's what he said since. Um, and look, you, it was like kind of the big brother mentality. Like, you can't really beat, <coughs> you can't really beat your big brother, and he sort of came up idolising you in a way. Yeah, but, you know, look, they honestly believed, and and I don't believe that if I'd have been someone different, Lester would have beaten me because styles make fights, and I had the style. I was an endurance fighter. Lester Lester was too, but Lester was, you know, if I had trained Lester and kept training, Lester would have used his jab much more. He didn't, people say he didn't use his jab when he fought me. Well, I took that away from him. You made him fight your fight. I made him fight my fight, and that's what experience does. And But if, if, if I had been his trainer, I think Lester could have been possibly the greatest Australian ever because I would have changed things with him and because Lester became so, uh, and, you know, Keith no longer with us, but Keith became one of Australia's great trainer, but it was always a, with Keith about the big bombs, the big knockout punch rather than the smartness of boxing. And, and you know, <clears throat> Lester could have developed a better jab and used the jab and used more box, higher boxing IQ than he did because... Lester had this incredible killer instinct. He wanted to blast everyone out of there. And I mean everyone in the gym as well. And as you said, he had that that uh, that pain from what had happened when he was a young boy with his mother leaving him. And that that was what was one of the things that ate Lester up, you know, and drove him to be what he what he was. But, yeah, some incredible talent, Lester. He's, he's probably the, the greatest natural talent that I'd ever come across, you know, in my career. Do you think that that's like a, a matter of, you know, coordination and, you know, the ability to want to come forward, to want to fight, to have a fight. Yeah, a combination of everything really and, you know, as you said, you know, come from, Lester came from a relatively poor background and his mother had left his father and that was, was gave him something to, like, get between his teeth and, you know, make him bitter against the world, which boxing was a great a great release for him. Um, and he just became so good at it. He was just so natural as well, you know. I mean, he couldn't have got to where he was if he wasn't the natural athlete and had natural reflex. He was incredibly hard to hit too. He moved his head extremely well. Uh, yeah, just a, a great all-round athlete. Mm. So do, you, do you know of any examples of people who have gotten to get to, like, a really, really high level of boxing without being a really good athlete with just... You know, oh yeah, toughness. yes, definitely. I've you know I've seen guys that yeah you know a lot of it's the mindset and so much of boxing is in your in your in your mind what you want to achieve and what you want to get to and I mean you see some fighters that have got all the ability in the world and they'll never make it and other guys that haven't got as much ability but have got the determination and the drive and the toughness and will achieve will achieve things that you know guys with more ability can't achieve. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Can you do you think know of any examples of people who they don't they can be talented as well, but who are just tough, tough to the to the core? Uh, that I've dealt with, there'd, there'd be a stack. But let me think now. 
Uh, well, Frank Frank Rovers is one for sure. Frank was just relentless. Frank wasn't like a super slick boxer. Couldn't take no for an answer. Couldn't take no for an answer. Would walk through a brick wall. Mm. You know, just relentless. Trained hard. Run marathons. You know, just lived lived and trained and ate boxing and, you know, he, he just. <laughs> just a machine he was just an absolute machine and you know to stop guys like Hector Thompson and Baby Cassius when Baby Cassius was at his best um, you know beat them over 15 rounds by just sheer work rate and strength and pressure you know yeah Frank's a great example of that what you can achieve yeah and what was your tactic when you went into fight Lester Ellis? Because obviously the mental warfare was kind of there. You had the, the post there of him saying enemy on it. He said that he had your face on the dark. Yeah. There was a little bit of bad blood. There was Dana really Goodson bad blood. Had, had changed corners. Yeah, Dana it was almost like it's, like it's like, you know, it's something that you'd have to see in a movie. But yeah. it's, it's just insane the, the amount of, the amount of you know, build well, up there was. Dana it. Goodson, after I collapsed in Miami with the heel injury, within a week of getting back to Melbourne, Dana Goodson had jumped ship and was Lester's trainer. And I was filthy on that because I'd bought Dana, I'd lived in Hawaii with Dana, um, lived in a little dingy flat with him, trained with him. He was number two kickboxer in the world. I said to him, I'll bring you to Australia and I'll make you a superstar. And I brought him to Australia and no one would fight him here. I did promote one of his fights here, but then he became a legendary trainer and mentor for so many kickboxers and boxers. Um, and to be honest with you, you know, Dana's passed away quite a long time ago. I was so filthy on him when he jumped ship and trained Lester. Um, but we ended up mates again, you know. I, I sort of buried the hatchet with him years later. Um, but, yeah, well, I was pretty, dirt, pretty dirty at the mm. time when he did what he did. It, uh, and did you feel that you – because obviously not everyone would have thought that you could have gone and, you know, um, won that fight. Most people made the weight as well. Yeah. There's, well, there's, the, there's a lot of factors. Well, Dana was – when I, in retrospect, when I look back on it, Dana is one of the main reasons why I got the fight. It was, you know, it's, it's history now, but Dana jump ship became Lester's trainer. In Hawaii, Dana had, saw, Dana had seen me struggle to make, I think it was 62 and a half or – excuse me, or 63 and a half for a fight against Mike Anderson, whatever it was, I came in over the weight, a kilo over the weight and had to sweat it off. Mm. And, you know, I had to make 58.95 and there I am struggling to make 62 and a half or whatever it was. So Dana didn't think there was any way possible I could make the weight. And I sort of knew that he would be telling them I can't make the weight and be strong. Mm. Um, and really no one believed that I could do it except myself and my nutritionist and my dietitian Karen Inchi and the guys who weighed me underwater, my fat content. And, and I did it, you know, properly for the first time. I mean, science in boxing is, is so important and to get it, get to a weight as low as you possibly can and retain your strength at the upper echelon of boxing is really, really important. It's like, Very a, it's important. like a balancing act, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is. It you know, really is. And did you feel like when you came into that fight, you were like, I know this kid, I know what his personality is like, I've taught him things. As you said, well, you've, you've taught him everything yeah, that he knows, but not everything not that he knows. Know. Yeah, it, was a, it was a real psychological battle and I just had the utmost belief in myself that over 15 rounds, which, you know, I was a 15-round fighter, the longer a fight went, the stronger I would get. And I just figured over 15 rounds I'd be too physically strong for him and I was a body puncher. 
and the body punches would wear him down as they did Graham Brooks and so many other quality fighters. Like when I fought Graham Brooks, that was a fight that I, I mean, I love Graham Brooks. And, you know, he, I lost the Commonwealth title on a 15-round split decision to Claude Noel. He beat Claude Noel. I was the number one contender. He had to fight me. And, and you know, I beat him up pretty badly, Graham. Um, but, yeah, I just had the physical strength and seasoning. And I was, look, at that stage, I'd had, what, 50, 55 fights when I fought Graham, 56 when I fought Lester. A lot of experience on these guys, you know, 20, 18 fights, 20 fights. Experience is a great thing in boxing. And I just figured with Lester, with my pressure, my physical strength, and my body punching over 15 rounds, I figured I'd stop him late in the fight. But, you know, to Lester's credit, he was still banging away big time. Bragman knows in the 12th round, um, he was still banging away big time. The 12th round, Joe Bugner picked that my nose was broken because I, he smashed me with the right hand, but beyond about round seven, you're beyond pain and exhaustion and you don't really feel the punches as much. Mm. And Lester smashed me with the right hand and Joe Bugner picked it and blood was just streaming out of my nose down my... The first time I was busted. And I came back to the corner and I said, and my trainer, Ray Styles, Kid Lewis, goes, great round, great round, you're three rounds, you're champion of the world. And I went, he's broken me effing nose. And he goes, forget it, forget it. Three rounds, you're champion of the world. I said, but he, I was looking for some sympathy. I said, but he's broken me effing nose. Forget it. And You, you weren't know, getting any sympathy? No, no sympathy. And I went out and won the last three rounds and... And it was a bit of an anti-climax, you know, it was, I think, um, five, six and seven points, unanimous decision, you know, in the new IBF champion, which was, you know, one of the greatest highlights of my life, to be mm. honest, Jack, you know. Is, is there words that can sort of no. encapsulate how that feels? No, nah, incredible feeling. And I explained this the other night before the, the Tim Zhu, Dwight Ritchie fight. It's hard for someone to explain uh, when you've prepared for a big fight mentally and physically and you've put everything into it and you know for a major title or even something at a lower level even for an amateur title it's just the greatest feeling you can possibly have to compete with someone beat them on a level of a mental level and a physical level and you know and win it's it's there's no other feeling like I it. have absolutely no idea how that would feel but I can imagine if I do try and imagine it what I imagine is just the ultimate test of self will and the ultimate test of character and you know because many people if they're trying to achieve something really great will they'll probably waver in their self-belief but to maintain a level of self-belief and get to a point where you can beat the other guy who's also the best is just yeah well that's when it comes down to your your mental strength you know and that's that's something that fortunately I was always good at. And I think, as I said, I think my father instilled that into me. And to see what my father went through, you know, uh, 20, 30 trips with what they called a tour over Germany or over dropping, you know, doing a, you, you, in, the, in the Lancaster bombs. And after 30 trips, you finished the tour, you'd, you could walk away. Well, Dad did 29 and the war was over. You know, so mm. he didn't have to do the 30th. But there was about a one in three chance of surviving a t- one tour. You know, so it was every time you'd go out. Imagine sitting on the airstrip, you know, in a Lancaster bomber, knowing that you're going to fly over Germany and drop bombs on people and mm. hope that you're going to come back. You know, it would have been just hard to comprehend, isn't it's it? It's almost like a different sort of level of... <laughs> it's hard to comprehend. <laughs> yeah. It's your life, you know. Yeah. My old man was uh, also in the Army First South Africa. Wow. Yeah, yeah okay. And he was in... He was a South African and he... Uh, he was in the, the bushes of Angola. <laughs> and uh, I think the, the mental strength when you're doing something like being 
in the army is oh like being in a war zone is just next level. He told me that there'd be times when people would 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 go bush mad, and when he when he says that you go bush mad is that you know you're in the obviously in the in the bush, and people go so stir crazy by the training and by the isolation, yeah, and by yeah. the mental yeah. torture. And what they see, that they'll just literally lose their minds. I believe it. In in a ball and just curl up. Yeah, well, I I find it hard to comprehend what our parents went through with, you know, the... With you know the Second World War and or other wars, Vietnam War, or, you know just just to I mean I did Kokoda last year. Just what our soldiers did against the Japanese in New Guinea was just beyond belief. And you know, <clears throat> boxing's a tough sport, but you know when you look at what what our forefathers have done and that incredible. And I just can't. Uh, war's such a fruitless thing, and you know it's just it's just horrible. And you know. Um, there's wars happening all around the world, and it's just a terrible waste of life, and just a, just a, you know, something. It's just hard to comprehend, to be honest. More. You know, yeah. terrible, really, to be honest. I couldn't agree more. Mm. So, if you had to look at all of the fight, fights that you've been to recently, which one would you look at and say that is one of the toughest fights that I've seen? Um, the greatest fight I've ever seen live through my boxing career was Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Arguello. Okay. Um, Aaron Pryor that night, that was at the Miami Orange Bowl. Uh, I think it was about 83, I think. Um, Aaron Pryor that night, you know, and Aaron Pryor was, later came out that he was a pretty heavy cocaine user, whether that was used on the night or not, there's debate about that. But he was inhuman that night, you know, the way he fought relentlessly for 14, stopped Aguayo in the 14th round. And, you know, I mean, I... There's, I've seen a million great fights in Australia as well, but you know, just some of the greater fights like Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier, the first fight even, you know, to come back after three and a half years out and to be, you know, to be beaten that first time and to be knocked down in the 15th round and to get up and, and finish the fight, you know, and then to come back and beat Frazier twice after that, you know, what a fighter, what a man. and. And, you know, Roberto Duran's another one that, uh, you know, he fought until he was in his 50s. And These are some of your favourites. Favourite, they're my favourites probably. And, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard was another one of my favourites. And I've had the pleasure of meeting Sugar Ray on a few occasions and Roberto quite I a bit. next time, hopefully next time we do a podcast, I'd love to just go through all those guys you've met and just see yeah. how, how, they, how they were as people. And you look, stuff. you know, unfortunately Tommy's not real good. Um, Roberto's 100%. Yeah, he's mad as a cut's Marvin Hagler's in remarkable condition. Evander Holyfield's good. Kay went to become a movie star in Italy, didn't he? Yeah, 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 he did. He's a bit of a star over there. He still looks in great condition. Mm. George Foreman, I've I've interviewed George and I've had dinner with George. He's he's fabulous, you know. Um, Yeah, I've never met. I'd love to meet Mike Tyson. He's one guy I would love to meet. Uh, So would I. What a machine. What a machine, you know. Yeah, I would love to as well. So who do you think is your favourite Australian boxer of all time? (sighs) Lionel Rose, without doubt. Johnny Famichon and Lionel Rose were my two idols. Um, More so Lionel because I sort of... um, I mean, I knew Johnny's background. He was a you know French-born and and a migrant immigrant like me, but to see where Lionel came from, and probably the fact that I became a sparring partner of Lionel when I was about 18, <clears throat> um, never sparred. Famo Famo retired by then. You know, the two of them were my main idols, and Muhammad Ali was one of my idols. But uh, Lionel, from an Australian perspective, Lionel Rose, and then. 
then Tony Mundine Senior. Mm. Um, he was he was one of my one guy I looked up to a great deal, and you know, unfortunately, he never got to win a world title. But he fought, you know, Carlos Monzon, one of the greatest fighters in history. But yeah, Lionel Rose was was my my main idol, and probably one of the main catalysts that got me into boxing to see what he'd achieved and where he'd come from. Mm. You know, I thought, well, if he can do it, you know, with the adversity that he's faced, I can do it. Yeah. You know. I've, man, I've had such a, an awesome time with this podcast. As I said before, I'd love to do it again sometimes. I think with a, with a guy like you, we kind of need – we can't do it in one hour. We kind of need three, four, five of them and a little series of, of different Well, Jake, of I'm happy to do it whenever you want to, mate. Up, yep. up for that. So yeah, for we sure. Keep, we keep this one to an hour yep. and then have a few different ones if you'd be up for that. Sounds That's good. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Brad. Good on you, Jake. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you so been much. been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks to all guys. the listeners out there. Thank you. Awesome. Cheers.